In, in northeast Georgia, when I was growing up, there were three things you could always count on during the summer. The first thing, it was going to be very, very, very hot. The second thing was that if you happened to have a pool in your backyard, then you were going to have a lot of friends during the summer. That was the other thing. The third thing was that every little Baptist church in Elbert County was going to schedule a revival during the month of August. One week during the month of August, every little church was going to have a revival. Those were the three things that you could count on. Well, actually, there were four things you could count on. The fourth one being that not much was going to come from those revivals that the churches scheduled. You know, if you've been in a, in a church that, that schedules revivals either in the summer or in the spring or, or in the fall, you, you kind of know how it goes. You maybe have a committee or maybe the pastor just picks a, a week and you'll hear the announcement sometimes maybe in early June where the pastor says, well, we've scheduled our fall revival or our summer revival for August the 1st through the 8th and Dr. Sam Jones is going to be our guest speaker. Y'all come and, and bring Bring your friends. That's kind of how that usually went. But what that really meant was that we were going to schedule a week during August where we were going to have church every night and we were going to have a guest speaker. And, and what we hoped would happen from that was some poor lost soul would see our flyer hanging up in the grocery store and somehow stumble into our church and find Jesus by accident. And the reason I say that is because none of us had any real intention of going out and inviting anyone to come other than maybe our friends and our neighbors who were Christians just belonged to another church because we wanted them to come hear our guest speaker. And for that reason, as, as we Christians generally define revival, I've never been a big fan of that simply because it was a lot of effort and a lot of, of planning and, and all that stuff with really very little benefit, and, and I never really indeed saw a revival, I can remember thinking to myself, can churches really schedule a revival anyway? I mean, is that how it works? We, we schedule a revival, we let the Holy Spirit know, and, and He shows up that week and, and takes care of it. <laughs> I remember in Georgia, the little church I worked in, I remember I was in a store, and this man came up to me and he said, uh, hey, Hey, y'all having revival this week? I said, not yet. He said, well, well, wait a minute. He said, your flyer, your flyer says you're having it this week. I said, well, we're, we're, we're having church every night. But I, I said, we haven't had revival yet. It just hasn't happened. Because you, you, can't, you can't schedule it, I think. I think as God's people, we can prepare for revival. But it's impossible for us to schedule it. In a moment, we're going to be looking at a revival or preparations for a revival that occurred uh, in Nehemiah's time. They had finished rebuilding the wall, but Nehemiah realized that there was more than just the physical rebuilding of the wall that needed to take place. Nehemiah chapter 7 details Nehemiah's organization of the city. He made sure that the city was well-ordered and well-governed and well-guarded. And he takes a census and he records that census and some other details uh, in chapter 7. And, and you can read all of those names and details if you like. But even as the people settle in, to this newly rebuilt city or, the, or inside these newly rebuilt walls. 
uh, Nehemiah realizes that he's still got a lot of work to do because it's the renewing of the people that now he needs to be about. Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 73 and then going into uh, chapter 8. It says, The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the temple servants, along with, a, with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Well, so far, this looks like one of our revivals, or at least the way we look at them. They, they picked a date. Uh, they have a special speaker that's, that's going to come out and read the word to them. They uh, call everybody together. I mean, this looks like what we do, isn't it? Maybe, but there's a big exception. There's a big exception. If you'll notice that there is no pretense about this getting together being any attempt to bring people into the faith. None at all. In fact, they're not encouraged to go out and invite the lost hordes around them to come in. In fact, the only people who are invited to this are the Jews. This is a closed meeting. Nobody else is invited. And maybe the reason that what we call revivals in the church, maybe the reason they are so unsuccessful is that we really don't have a good understanding of what a revival is in the first place. The word revive comes from a Latin word which means to live again. Well, obviously, if something's going to live again, it had to be alive in the first place. The prefix re, R-E, indicates returning to a previous condition. Returning to a previous condition. Think of the words that, that use it, like resuscitate, or restore, or renew, return, regain. All of those indicate returning to a previous condition. Now, why is this so important for us when we talk about revival? Why is it so important for us to understand this? Well, it's this reason. Because revival is not about those who don't know Christ. Revival is for those of us who do. It's not for those who don't know Christ. Revival is for those of us who do. People who don't know Jesus were never alive in the first place. So there's nothing to revive. No, it's the church. It's believers in Jesus Christ. It's you and me who follow Christ. We are the ones who need revival. We are the ones that need to return to a previous condition. And you might find that odd that I'm talking about returning to a previous condition because if you know our vision here at Clarksburg Baptist Church is move beyond. So why in the world are you talking about returning to a previous condition? Well, here's what I mean by that. What it means is that you are returning to something that you had inside of you at one time. Only it's become dead or cold 
or dim. In other words, we're talking about a revival of the passion, of the zeal, of the eagerness, of the determination, of the joy that you knew when you first found salvation through Jesus Christ. It's a revival of the fire of that excitement that you had when you first heard and believed the gospel. It's a revival of that desire to share with others what you have. It's a revival of that love that you once shared for one another in Christ. It's a revival of a desire to serve others. And it's a revival of a desire to be driven and guided by the Holy Spirit. That's the condition we need to return to if we indeed are going to know revival of God's people. It's still there. It's still there inside of you. It's just either buried or hidden or has gotten awfully dim over the years. Now, yes, Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples. We are supposed to share our faith with others. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is just the idea that we are never going to be successful to that end unless we, the church, God's people, believers in Christ, find revival. There's no substantive change that's going to be made in the world unless we first find a way to be revived. How can you prepare for revival? That's what we're going to talk about today. The rest of Nehemiah talks about this whole kind of concept, but but what we need to talk about today is how do you prepare for it? If you can't plan it, how do you prepare for it? Because, well, first of all, we need to realize, and, and John talked to us today about God's word. There, there is no revival apart from God's word. Nehemiah's revival, every revival in history has happened because of the fire that was ignited by God's word. So in light of that, I want to talk about three things that Nehemiah shows us here today that are important for us as God's people if we are going to have revival. Three essentials in preparation. The first one is that we must possess a desire for the truth of God's word. We must possess a desire for the truth of God's word. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 3 and then verse 5 and 6 It says, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. People look around our country today and and they lament the fact that that our country uh, has sort of lost its moral compass if it ever had one uh, to begin with. And I often hear the, the, the saying where people will say, well, you know, America really needs to get back to the Bible. Well, that's a good preacher line and that's a good politician line, but what does it mean? What does it mean? That's a good rah, rah, rah line, but what does it mean? Does it mean the government needs to get back to the Bible? Does it mean 
Our laws need to be based on the Bible again. Does that mean businesses need to start using biblical practices? What does it mean when, when somebody says that? In fact, the next time you start to say it, before you say it, think, what am I going to mean when I say this? Or if somebody says it to you, America really needs to get back to the Bible, say, well, what do you mean by that exactly? What are you talking about? Now, I'm all for, for America and the Bible and, and, and all of that. But usually what the person who says that means is that I'm fine. I'm where I'm supposed to be in my, my walk with Christ. And everybody else needs to, to get back here. Maybe not everybody, but, but that's, that's it. Because what I worry about is, instead of us worrying about America getting back to the Bible, which I don't know how that happens, just by saying it. But here's the idea. I think we, the church, God's people, we need to get back to the Bible. We need to get back to the truth of God's Word. You know, we, we need a desire for the truth we need a hunger for the truth as God's people. And you know where it begins? It begins with a respect for God's word. If you look here at the passage we read from Nehemiah, when they read from God's word, there was a respect. The people stood up, uh, they engaged, uh, they shouted amen, uh, and, they, and they bowed down. And the problem we run into as believers, and I'm not talking about unbelievers here, I'm talking about believers, a lot of times is we have kind of lost our respect for God's Word. We read it, we, we listen to it, we listen to sermons, we come to church, we're involved in, in, in a life group, but we've kind of lost our respect for God's Word, and here's where it shows up. Because, and I'm not, again, I'm not talking about non-believers here, I'm talking about believers. I hear believers say, well, you know, the Bible really isn't relative to this part of life. Or people will say, well, the Bible's full of errors or, or contradictions. Or they'll say, well, you know, God's Word ha has somehow changed. I mean, God's Word can't possibly be applicable to this particular thing. I know what it says, but surely it doesn't really mean what it says. Or, or there are people who believe that, that somehow uh, they can just pick and choose which part of the Bible. They, they believe and follow, and if they believe and follow more than, than they don't believe and follow, then, then God thinks that's okay. Well, it's not okay, because what it shows is that we have lost a respect for God's Word. And one of the things that I fully believe, if you think about it, Scripture tells us in Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verse 8, that the Word of our God endures forever. If you say it doesn't, then you're saying God's a liar. And either God's all truth or he's not at all. So we have to decide as God's people, are we going to respect his word? Are we going to believe his word? Are we going to respect the word as coming from the God, the creator of the universe? Or are we just going to pick and choose? Now, it's not just believers, but sometimes it's those of us who preach as well. Now, a lot of times, I'll admit, it's a lot easier to preach what you know people are going to want to hear. It's easy to stand up and preach a sermon that you know people are back there going to go, yes, 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 while you preach. You know, I mean, that's, you can get people fired up. Sometimes when you really know you're preaching is when they're just kind of looking at you going, 
you know, looking around. That's, that's when you know maybe, maybe you're saying things maybe that some, somebody needs to hear. But I think preachers a lot of time, we, we shy away from it. And another thing we do is rather than confronting people, when, when they say things, you know, somebody in the church will, will say something and, and it's just like you think, oh, man, that, that's not what the Bible says. But you give them a pass because you don't want to confront them. You don't want to upset them. They may get mad, you know. They may leave the church. And I don't mean confront them in a bad way, but, but just say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that's not really what the Bible says. But, but we give people a pass far too often. True revival is going to happen when God's people, <laughs> preachers, and folks in the pews. Revival is going to happen when we get hit full in the face with the truth of God's word. Full in the face with the truth of God's word. And revival is never going to happen unless we who preach the word and unless the believers who believe and read the word, revival is never going to happen unless we are willing to accept the word and be open to the truth of the word no matter how painful it might be. If we're not willing to do that, we're never going to be revived because there's no revival apart from the truth of God's word. The truth is our foundation for living. And if God is the creator and the sustainer, if we ever hope to live any kind of life that even vaguely resembles the way he wants us to live, we are not going to do it apart from the truth of his word. The second essential is that we must possess a desire to understand God's Word. In other words, it's not enough just to know the truth. You want to understand the truth. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, the Levites, and it lists all their names there, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Ezra and the leaders weren't just going to read it and throw it out there and hope everybody uh, got it and understood it. Now, I'm, I'm not, I know God's Word is powerful, and God's Word doesn't need me. God's Word is perfectly capable of speaking for itself. But, but God has appointed people to, to help others understand His Word. And, the, and Ezra and Nehemiah, they all realized that. The importance of helping people to understand. And they, were, they did that. And we need to understand that it's important for us to move beyond just hearing, even knowing God's word, to understanding. Now, the first thing Nehemiah did was they were deliberate about what they did. And I think the being deliberate actually has two sides to it. The first one is, as God's people, you have to be deliberate about trying to understand God's word. You have to, to make the effort. You have to take the time. You have to take advantage of the opportunities. Now, it's important that the church has to can, you know, provide the opportunities. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that you have to take advantage of those opportunities now we can have a smorgasbord of opportunities but you are the one who has to take the plate and the fork and go through the line and then then eat okay we can't force you to do that 
But there comes a time in your life when you need to take that initiative. People talk all the time about leaving a church and going from one church to the other because they're not being fed. Now, that may mean the church doesn't have any opportunity for them, but I would venture to say the church has some. Most churches have a lot. You see, the, the idea is that at some point in your walk with Christ, you have to take the initiative. My mom, at one point in my life, I'm sitting at the dinner table, and she said to me, David, actually when she was mad, she said, David Lee. She said, you are 24 years old. It's time for you to learn how to pick up a fort and eat for yourself so I don't have to feed you. Now, that's bizarre, <laughs> and you know that didn't happen. But the point is, a lot of people who have been Christians for a long, long, long time are still standing around waiting for someone to spoon-feed them the Word of God instead of taking the initiative themselves to take advantage of the opportunities that are there. Not having enough time is not a good excuse. You have to find the time. You have to make the time. You have to make it a priority. The church can offer all this stuff, and you can look at the whole gamut of things and say, the church is not offering me anything that's going to help me to understand God's Word. My office is on the second floor of the Monroe building. Come knock on that door and say, David, I need something. You don't have it. What can we do? We'll find you some way. We have to take the initiative. But I will also say that the church has to take the initiative as well. Beyond just saying, here are a list of our life groups. Here are a list of our worship times. Here are a list of our other groups. What happened here in Nehemiah was really, really special. There was personal interaction. They didn't just say, okay, now, I proclaim the word of God to you. Now, before we leave, there are going to be some rooms over here, and you folks find a room and go there and learn more. No, no, there was personal interaction. The, the people who understood it went among the people to help them understand. There was personal interaction. And I think it's important for us as a church, but who needs to take that initiative are folks who are more mature Christians. When someone becomes a new Christian, you need to take the initiative to go to them, to interact with them, to help them to understand the faith. There's that personal interaction that is so important. We can get them in a group, but if there's no personal interaction, I don't think people grow as well. So how about it? How about it? Who are you helping to understand God's word? You say, well, I don't really understand it. Well, guess what? If you're a believer, there's a good chance you probably understand it better than somebody. So there's always somebody you can find that you can help. That personal interaction. You need to take the initiative to understand it and to take advantage of opportunities. But the church, meaning the church as individual Christians need to take the initiative as well. The third thing that, essential rather, for preparation is that we must possess a desire to be encouraged by God's word. Verse 9 of chapter 8 says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to, to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people 
had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. You see, when they had a desire for the truth of God's word, when they had an understanding of God's word, something happened. And what, it, what happened was it exposed the truth about who they were. And when their truth was exposed, it says that they wept. They wept when they realized who they really were and where they had really been. The things they had done and the, and the things that they had not done. And as they stand there and realize their sins, something actually doesn't happen, which is important. Nehemiah and Ezra and all those other people don't come to them and say, I told you so. I told you so. See, if you'd just done what I told you to, this would never have happened. Or you should have known better. Or you need to do better next time. Or do you realize the mess you have made of your life? They don't do that. Here's what they do. Verse 10. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. There's a worship song from a while back that says this. It says, I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my shame. I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. You see, weeping is a good response when we're confronted with our sin because it shows that our hearts are tender in our relationship to God. But God's desire is not for us to spend the rest of our lives weeping. God's desire for us is to have joy. So what does this mean? <laughs> you have to be willing to trade up. You do. You have to be willing to trade up to trade up from your sorrows and your shame to the joy of the Lord. Psalm 32, I love these words. It says, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose, rec whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. That joy is our strength. It's the joy of being more aware of God's strength than floundering in your weaknesses. And it's the joy of living in his presence rather than dwelling in your own sin and shame. And it's a joy of obeying God's word and not just weeping because you have disobeyed it. And if we're willing to trade up, then we'll know that joy. But if we're not willing to trade up, then we will never know the revival. We will never know the joy that comes from a relationship with God. You see, God doesn't want us weeping all the time. Now, that point of grief 
that point of grief where we recognize our sin, our wrongdoing, is important. But it's followed by deciding to do right. And that decision is a time of joy. When we decide to, to trade up, so to speak, what happens is we become born from above. And we become a new creation. And the old is gone. And the new has come. It's time for us to trade up. To know the joy that comes. After we have heard the truth, understood the truth, and been confronted with the truth, and been sorrowful. It's time then to trade up. And know the joy and the strength that comes from God. That's what God wants in your life. Now, we've talked today about preparation. This is not the end of it. This is just the preparing for it. In the weeks ahead, we're going to find out how this thing progresses. But today, what I want to challenge you to do is to prepare your hearts to prepare your hearts by having a desire for the truth of the Word of God. To prepare your heart by having a desire to understand the Word of God. But also having within you a desire to be encouraged by the Word of God. It's possible. It's possible. Let's pray.